Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's been three trading days since my last podcast, and a lot has happened. Unfortunately, I've just been tied up the last couple of days, so this was the first time that I've had a chance to sit down at the microphone and interject some comments on what's been going on. But let me wind the clock back to Friday, because I recorded my last podcast on the Thursday where the Dow plunged by 1,800 points. And the following day, we actually had a bit of a bounce. The market tried to rally, but it really was not that impressive a rally, although we did take the major indexes out of closing below the prior week's low, which would have been an outside reversal. What happened with the markets is they took out the previous week's high and they took out the previous week's low. Now, they closed very close to the low, but they didn't close below the low. So it was uh, a a weak week technically, but it wasn't as weak as it could have been had it closed below the lows of the prior week, but it didn't look very good. And then on Sunday night, the market immediately started selling off. I think as soon as Asia trading began, we were down two, 300 points. Uh, Then we were down 500. I think by two in the morning, New York time, which is probably late in the day, Asia trading before Europe really started going, the Dow was down as much as a thousand points. And then by the time the the U.S. market officially started trading, I think we were still off about 700. So it really got started as if it was going to be a weekday and it looked like we were going to go and take out the lows from Thursday. And that is when Uh, Jerome Powell came riding in like the cavalry to rescue the market. And on cue, he comes in and announces a new bond buying program, or really not a new program, but just reiterating a commitment he made in the past to buy corporate bonds. Now, what he had been doing up until now, I guess, was buying ETFs. Now, what he came out and told the markets yesterday morning is we're going to be buying individual bonds. We're not just going to buy 
portfolios of exchange-traded uh, funds where you have a, a basket of bonds, we're going to pick individual bonds in the market and we're going to buy those. And their criteria is that they're going to buy any investment-rated bond, including the lowest rating that there is, which on Standard & Poor's is triple B-. minus. Moody's, it's got a different rating, but they're going to buy the lowest tier of investment grade bonds. So remember, triple B minus is just one notch above junk bonds. So the Federal Reserve is going to take its balance sheet and put it into bonds that are barely above junk. But the reality is they are junk. They're just not being rated as junk. I mean, there are plenty of other guys out there, mainstream analysts who have pointed out that the rating agencies are asleep at the switch. I mean, remember, the tranche of subprime mortgages that went bad, that toppled the whole housing market, was rated triple B minus. Those were the bonds that I was shorting, triple B minus. And so I think the triple B minus bonds really should be junk, but Moody's and Standard & Poor's are too lazy or too afraid to downgrade them. In fact, most of the bonds that are lower rated are actually junk. They're just not rated junk by the rating agencies. And I think that's pretty much common knowledge out there in the market. So effectively, by buying bonds that it's well known are actually being overrated by the rating agencies, the Fed is effectively buying junk bonds. It is investing its balance sheet in junk bonds. And even if they're not junk, triple B minus bonds still have a decent chance of defaulting, even if they were legitimately triple B minus, which they're not. So the Fed may buy these bonds and then they default and they, they've lost all the money. They have nothing on the balance sheet. That means they can't sell the security back into the market if the security has no value. So this is a, a major, I think, step in the wrong direction when you have uh, the Federal Reserve using its balance sheet to buy junk bonds. And in fact, why are they even doing that? In fact, I'm going to get to this a little bit more later in the podcast, but since it's germane to this topic, I'm going to skip forward because uh, Powell testified in front of the Senate today, right? He he testifies in front of the House tomorrow, and this, you know, they, they had to do it on Zoom because of COVID. So it's a, you know, it's it's kind of funny watching the way they do this. But he was actually asked, and I don't remember which senator asked the question, but the question was. Why are you buying bonds? I mean, the bond market is strong now. We've had this big rally. We had this really good jobs report. We've been getting better than expected economic data, right? The economic surprise index went from record lows to record highs. We got more better than expected data this week. I'll get to that, you know, in a bit. But so we've got this good data. We've got the stock market way up now. We've got the bond market way up. What's the point? Why is the Fed doing this, right? And aren't you afraid or aren't you worried about screwing up the markets or the pricing signals? And if you, if the Fed buys bonds, that the bonds are not really going to reflect the market and they're going to send bad signals to investors on proper credit risk. Of course, all that is true. But not only did Powell deny that that was true, because he said he didn't think the Fed was having an impact on the market. Well, if the Fed wasn't having an impact on the market, then why do it? The purpose of this program is to impact the market. Otherwise, the Fed would not be doing it if it had no impact. But what he said was that, well, you know, we made a commitment 
to the markets that we were going to buy bonds. We told them that we were going to do it. And so we have to follow through. We have to live up to their promises. Well, why? Why do they have to live up to their promise? It really shows you that the Fed is beholden to Wall Street speculators. Those are the ones who are counting on the Fed buying those bonds because they already bought those bonds. They front ran the trade. As soon as the Fed announced its intention to buy corporate bonds, what did speculators do? They ran into the market and bought up corporate bonds and bid up their prices. So now you have a bunch of overpriced corporate bonds. And how do these speculators get out? They sell to the Fed. That's the reason they bought. So they could sell the Fed. And now the Fed is coming forward and saying, well, even though the prices have gone way up, right, they're not way down where they were when we said we were going to come to the rescue. Even though we've had this recovery in the markets, we're going to buy them anyway because we made a commitment. So what they're saying is they want to honor their commitment to the speculators. They want to make sure that the people who follow the Fed's advice get rewarded. Right, Because the, the Fed doesn't want to disappoint speculators because it needs those speculators for the future. Right, It wants speculators to know that when the Fed says something, it means something. So its open mouth operations actually have teeth. Because if the Fed didn't follow through, then the next time they cried wolf, nobody would come running and buy those bonds. But that really tells you what this is about. It's about propping up the financial markets, rewarding the speculators. It's not about uh, the economy. But then, you know, he also got asked a question, what about the data or when is he going to stop doing this? Or is it just doesn't matter? And he did then let slip. He said, well, you know, if the market really goes up, if the stock market keeps going up, we can always taper it back. We can always dial down the purchases. And if the stock market goes down, well, then we, we, could, we could buy. And as soon as Powell said that, the market tanked. I mean, it never went negative, but it went from up like 700 to up like 100. And it was a sharp sell-off. And I can tell that traders were taken aback because, wait a minute, they were saying, hey, the market's going up. Powell just said, if the market keeps going up, we're not going to buy the bonds. And so I think traders got scared that the Fed wasn't going to buy the bonds unless the market was going down. So they had to oblige the Fed by pushing the market down to make sure that the Fed would follow through with its commitment to buy the bonds. But then the market snapped back. And I think the attitude really may be that this commitment is just another implied put, right? The Fed has got the back. Another thing that we're going to do, if we start to see the market going down, well, we're just going to buy more corporate bonds. So maybe this is emboldening uh, the traders to to hold on to their positions or to buy the stocks because they think their downside is limited. But it also implies that the upside is limited because if the market gets too strong, the Fed's going to back away from the bond market, in which case it would implode. So in a way, the Fed has kind of got the market trapped. Maybe it's got to put beneath the market to limit uh, your losses, but there's also a cap to limit your profits, which means that the market is likely to be range bound based on those comments. And I'm not really seeing uh, any uh, reaction in the mainstream media uh, to, to what a pal just laid out, but he really seems like he's targeting the market. He wants to keep it in a range. He doesn't want it collapsing, but then he doesn't want it going too high. And so this is how he's trying to uh, control the action. But in any event, the, the, the Fed's efforts 
while it reversed the rally or reversed the big sell-off that we had in the morning, that seven, 800-point sell-off, we didn't have that big a gain. I mean, all we did is eradicate the decline. There wasn't that big a gain. And, you know, we also had some better-than-expected economic data that came out on Monday morning, which also helped fuel the rally, and that was the Empire State Manufacturing Survey, which came out last month in uh, May was negative 48.5. And the expectation was for negative 30 for June, which would be another big down number. And instead we got negative 0.2, which is is almost zero. I mean, it's almost back to, you know, zero is not contracting or expanding. I mean, zero would be like normal. And, And so that was way above what Wall Street had been expecting. So I think this also might've added some fuel to the rally. But I think that the Trump administration looked at that close and they were a bit worried that Powell's rescue didn't quite do the job. And then I think Trump decided that he would have to come charging in uh, with a bailout of his own. And he announced, uh, we're going to move forward with a trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Now, of course, we've been hearing about this infrastructure bill ever since Trump was elected. In fact, even before he was elected. So again, I mean, talk about a crying wolf, uh, but that didn't stop the traders from running in to buy because as soon as that came out, the Dow futures were up about 500 points right away. And that's, again, about how much we closed up. Uh, We were up maybe 800 points at one point, but the impetus for the early rally was the promise of uh, a trillion dollar infrastructure spending. Of course, all of it would be paid for by the Fed, which means it's not really paid for, it's monetized. And, you know, what the Republicans are saying, what the Trump administration is saying is, hey, this is a great opportunity, right? We got to take advantage of these really, really low rates. We have these record low rates. And so we should take advantage and we should borrow a trillion dollars. This is the best time to borrow money and let's invest in infrastructure. Except the only reason that rates are this low is because the Federal Reserve is buying all the bonds. So the only way that we can actually float a trillion dollars worth of uh, infrastructure bonds, right, is if the Fed monetizes the entire thing. So what's good about that? I mean, how are we taking advantage of that if it's being monetized? Yeah, I mean, if we can dupe the Chinese into buying the bonds and accepting, you know, uh, you know, a, what is it, a, a 10-year bond at 70 basis points? Yeah, I mean, if we could find these fools willing to do it, maybe he'd have a point. But that's not going to happen. They're not that dumb. We're the only ones that dumb. The Federal Reserve is going to buy all those bonds. In fact, it's already buying a bunch of bonds. That is the only reason that rates are so low. Trump wants to take advantage of rates that are only low because the Fed is monetizing the debt and creating all this inflation. So printing money to fund infrastructure is not a good thing. I mean, we could always do that. I mean, whenever we wanted to print money and do stuff, we could do it. But it's not a good thing to do that. So Trump is wrong by claiming this is a great time to borrow money. This is a horrible time to borrow money. Nobody's really going to lend it to us. And we already have $26 trillion of debt. I mean, when you're already $26 trillion of debt, now is not the time to pile more on, right? We, we got a deal with the debt crisis. In fact, even Powell, and again, this was in today's uh, a press conference, or not press conference, his Senate testimony, Powell admitted that the national debt is unsustainable. 
And the reason he said it's unsustainable is because it's growing faster than the economy. And so by definition, it's unsustainable because at some point, you know, it just there's just a, a collapse. But according to Powell, it doesn't represent an immediate threat. He said in that uh, testimony today that he's not worried about the size of the balance sheet, right? And he also said that he's not worried about the debt now, but it's a problem for future generations. It's a problem for our children and our grandchildren because they're going to have to pay all this interest on the debt, and that's going to come at the expense of other things uh, that that they might have spent the money on. And he mentioned that you know it, it would be more responsible for our generation to pay for the things that we need, not push the costs off uh, to uh, to our kids. But what Powell doesn't understand is it's not future generations that are going to deal with the consequences of the unsustainable debt. We're going to deal with it. This generation, we are the future generation. 50 years ago, right, 40 years ago, you know, people were saying the same thing they're saying now about the debt that our children are going to pay for it. Well, we're the children that are going to pay for it. We are the future generation. The future is finally here. It's us because we're going to have a dollar collapse. And 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 Powell also said the reason that we can handle the debt is because we have the reserve currency. That's right. That's why we've been able to handle it in the past. But that reserve currency status is not guaranteed in the future. And because we have abused it so much, because we have push that privilege to the point that we have, that's why we're about to lose it. That's the next shoe that's going to drop. And then that is the the final nail in the coffin. But the market was helped today again by some better than expected uh, economic data on retail sales. And this one came out, I guess, really shocked everybody in the strength of retail sales for May. Uh, And actually, we revised the uh, April decline down. So initially, April retail sales dropped 16.4%. And now they tell us they were only down 14.7%. The consensus was for a bounce back of 7.5%. And instead, we bounced back by 17.7%. We basically completely eradicated April's decline in May. And so I guess what probably happened is Everybody went out and spent their stimulus checks. You remember, I was thinking that maybe some of the people would decide they wanted to bank them and just save it just in case. But I guess, you know, Americans really want to go out with a bang. The only way I can see uh, such a big jump in, in, in retail sales is uh, from all these uh, uh, checks that were sent out, these unemployment checks where people are getting more money uh, now than they were when they had jobs. And I guess they went out and spent it. And some, uh, you know, uh, other bailout money got spent. And that's basically, I think, what's responsible for that jump in retail sales. But obviously, that momentum is not sustainable at all. And it will only continue, probably in a smaller way, so long as they're able to extend these benefits, which they very well may do. I mean, I think they're likely to do it, given that this is an election year. So there will be some sustained consumer spending. But it's all going to be because we've created inflation to make it all possible. But it wasn't all better than expected news because the industrial production number for May came out weaker than expected. In fact, the revisions were also weaker. So um, April, uh, initially, uh, production was uh, down 11.2%, and it was revised to down 125 And manufacturing was initially reported at down 13.7, and it revised to down 15.5. And um, the bounce was not as big as we thought in production. It was supposed to be 2.9%, only 1.4. So a bigger than expected 
drop in the prior month and a smaller bounce from a bigger drop. The uh, manufacturing number was slightly better, though. It was supposed to come in at up 3.6, and it was up 3.8. Capacity utilization, though, did move up from 64%, which I think was about a record low, and now it's at 64.8 versus an expectation of a bounce back to 66.7. So we barely bounced off of the record lows in uh, industrial production. But obviously, the main drivers of the market are the Fed and the Trump administration with a one-two barrel of stimulus, right? And it's all really monetary stimulus because all the money is going to come from the Fed, right? Whatever is being spent on infrastructure is just more QE. But obviously, there's a lot of corporations in particular that will benefit because they're going to get government contracts, right? They're going to get some of this infrastructure spending money. But a lot of this, of course, is going to bid up prices, right? In order to do the infrastructure, the government's going to be buying more raw materials, and that's just going to push up the prices. And a lot of these raw materials are going to be imported, and it's going to push up the trade deficit. So none of this is good for the economy. Remember, the government can never help the economy by spending money. I mean, every one of these congressmen or senators rather today, they're all talking about what the government can do to help the economy by spending money. But the government doesn't have money that it doesn't take. Any dollar that the government spends is a dollar that the private sector can't spend or can't invest. The government has to take money out of the economy before it can put it back in. Nobody seems to understand this basic point because they see the Fed creating money and they think, well, you know, we just print money. They don't realize that when they print money, they destroy the value of the money that's already there. So they're not adding new purchasing power. They're just redistributing it. Now, as long as the dollar is the reserve currency, we can redistribute some of that purchasing power from foreigners to us, right? But the question is, how much longer is the rest of the world going to let us get away with it? I mean, you probably have some crumbling infrastructure in other countries. Why should those countries subsidize new infrastructure spending in the United States? Wouldn't they be better off just spending the money on their own infrastructure? So we're going to soon see uh, this dollar crash. Hadn't happened yet. I mean, the dollar you know, hasn't really gone anywhere these last few days. It's been relatively quiet. Uh, but given what's going on, I mean, this got to be the lull before the storm. We're going to see a big decline. And one of the reasons that it's so likely is that nobody expects it. Nobody is worried about it. Nobody is anticipating it. Nobody even thinks it's possible. And that's usually when you get caught, right? It's it's the things that you don't expect that get you, right? The things that you're not prepared for. Believe me, nobody is prepared for a dollar crash. Nobody is prepared for a spike in inflation. In fact, one of the other questions that Powell addressed was about inflation, right? If, if he was worried about, you know, the balance sheet, the expanse in the balance sheet, you know, creating inflation. And of course, the expansion of the balance sheet by definition is inflation, but forget about that for a second. Powell said he wasn't worried about inflation because he said the Fed knows what to do if inflation becomes a problem. Well, yeah, I mean, knowing what to do and actually doing what you know are two totally separate things. Yes, the Fed knows what to do. Raise interest rates sharply and shrink your balance sheet, right? Contract the money supply, sell treasuries, sell corporate bonds, right? Put, you know, take money out of the economy and sell the assets that you bought to expand the money supply and jack up interest rates. Is the Fed going to do that? Not a chance. 
What would happen if the Fed did that? The economy would crash like it's never crashed before. So the Fed knows how to fight inflation. It just knows that it can't fight inflation with what it knows, because it also knows what it'll do to the bubble that it inflated. We don't have a real economy. We have a bubble. I mean, Powell should be scared out of his mind of inflation. I mean, inflation is the worst thing that can happen to the Fed. That's why the Fed has to pretend it wants more inflation, because it's scared to death of getting it, right? And whenever it has it, it has to claim it's not enough, because it can never claim it's too much. Because once it says there's too much inflation, it's stuck, because it can't do anything about it without crushing the economy. I mean, it would be, if you thought things were bad in the depths of the last couple of months, imagine what would happen if the Fed really had to start raising interest rates to fight inflation. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the answer is actually very revealing because the fact that he's not worried about it when it should be the most, the thing that he worries about the most shows you that he's got to be lying about it because he knows how bad the problem is. The, the markets can't possibly handle the truth. Uh, so the only thing he can do is to spoon feed them lies. In fact, another senator asked him about the balance sheet, you know, about, you know, how big is it? You know, what's the size of the balance sheet? And he's like, well, you know, it's just over $7 trillion. And then the senator asked him, well, what was it at the end of uh, 2019? He said it was a little below $4 trillion. So obviously it's up $3 trillion, uh, you know, in the last, uh, what, five months, right? A massive increase. And he said, so how are you going to shrink that balance sheet? And then I'm not making this up. Uh, Powell actually started laughing. He was like laughing, like, you know, like, what kind of crazy question is that? We can never shrink this balance sheet. I mean, he's actually laughing about it. That's how bad the problem is. He's trying to show, you know, he's trying to combat it with laughter or something. But then he said, well, you know, here's what our plan is, right? He said, here's how we're going to shrink it. He said, eventually, not really sure when, but sometime in the future, we'll just stop buying bonds, right? So they'll stop buying bonds. And then he said that as the economy grows, the balance sheet is going to shrink as a percentage of GDP. That's it. That's his entire plan to shrink the balance sheet is to stop growing the balance sheet and hope the economy continues to grow 
so that whatever the balance sheet is, when he stops expanding it, it becomes a smaller percentage of the economy, which is basically he's saying is the balance sheet is never going to shrink in, in actual terms, right? It's never going to go down. So when we had quantitative tightening before, that was like a one-time deal. It's never going to happen again. So let's say, you know, the Fed gets to 10 trillion and then decides that they're going to stop buying. Of course, if they stop buying, right, what are they going to do with 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 all the interest, right? Because they're still getting interest. I mean, they now maybe they're not going to reinvest that, which could all, all of a sudden that could be a problem if it doesn't reinvest the interest, because that would actually be shrinking as far as the government is concerned. But if it keeps reinvesting the 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 interest payments, well, then the balance sheet is going to keep growing even in nominal terms. But let's say um, Powell decides, or whoever's Fed chairman, by the time they stop growing the balance sheet decides, okay, we're going to hold it steady at this number, and we're not going to reinvest the dividends. We're just going to uh, ask for our money back, right, and make Congress find a new lender, right? The minute they stop, how many months do you think will go by before they have to ramp it back up again? Because the minute the Fed backs away from buying, the market's going to have a convulsion, just like it did last time. Now, last time, it took a couple of years, right? The, the, the market didn't really start going into convulsions until the fourth quarter of 2018 uh, when interest rates got up to about 2%. Well, that's when the balance sheet was under $4 trillion. When the balance sheet is $10 trillion or more, if the national debt is $30 trillion or $40 trillion, how long could we go and how high could rates go? I mean, maybe even a half a percent by that point would be too much, right? And so the, the time period with which the government can survive without the Fed doing more quantitative easing continues to shrink as they get more and more addicted to the habit, right? It's like a drug habit. The more drugs you take, the bigger your addiction gets. And then the quicker you go into withdrawal, the minute your dosage is dialed down or removed, and then in order to get high again, and you've got all this, you need that much more. So e even if what, what, what Powell is saying is true, if they can somehow wait until some future point and then stop expanding the balance sheet, that's only going to be a temporary pause. So he's really admitting again, as if, you know, people didn't know by now, I mean, how many times you got to be hit on the head, uh, that this is QE infinity, that the Fed's balance sheet is never going to shrink. And by the way, the national debt is not going to stop growing faster than the economy. That's just not going to happen. I mean, not until there's a crisis to force it. But as long as we keep on going the way we're going, the debt is always going to grow faster than the economy, which means the Fed is going to always have to monetize these bonds. So I don't even see where there's ever going to be a point in time where the Fed can stop buying. Because the minute the Fed stops buying, who is going to replace the Fed? The debt is going to be much bigger because we're enabling uh, all these debts to get bigger and bigger. The Fed has to be there. I mean, once you allow, right, it's like you hook, the Fed is hooking the government on the drug, but the Fed is the supplier of the drug. So the only way the market's going to get the drug or the government's going to get the drug is from the Fed. So you create this addiction, and then you think you can just step away and uh, you know, the, the government's going to be able to get a fix someplace else. It's never going to happen. So everything he said was impossible. But the most important thing to get out of it is his admission that there is no plan to shrink the balance sheet. And of course, how could there be? It's impossible. This balance sheet can't shrink. Now, as I've said many times on this podcast, 
It was the anticipation of the shrinking of the balance sheet. It was the anticipation of the normalization of interest rates that caused the dollar to bounce back from its lows, that caused gold to sell off from 1900 back in 2011. That whole uh, bubble, that whole recovery was predicated on the ability of the Fed to shrink its balance sheet and normalize interest rates. Well, now that everybody should know, because the Fed has told them that neither of those things are ever gonna happen, the bottom's gotta fall out of the dollar and gold's going through the roof and this whole house of cards is gonna come tumbling down. But probably the most frustrating part about the, uh, the Senate hearing was every single Democratic Senator had to make a point or ask a question about systemic racism in the United States. Right. So this has never been a problem. Right. I've never heard. I mean, I've heard about people talking about uh, black uh, poverty or the disparity between blacks and whites. I mean, that's always been an issue with a lot of the Democrats, particularly uh, the black Democratic candidates. But they've never talked about racism. Right. They've never said it was because of racism. Now, all of a sudden, every single black senator has now signed on to the truth that America is a racist society that we have race racism permeates all aspects of American society. And the very reason for all of the problems in the African-American community, all of these, all of the wealth inequality, income inequality, unemployment, crime, all that is due to racism and nothing else, right? Which of course is false. But even if it were true, right? Even if the society was every bit as racist as now every Democrat seems to believe it is because Black Lives Matter told them that it was racist. And if they deny it, then they are racist themselves, right? So everybody has to toe the line. Even if that were true, what do they expect the Federal Reserve to do about it? How Does the Federal Reserve have any power to stamp out racism? I mean, if people are racist, what, what, what can the Fed do? All the Fed could do is lower interest rates or raise interest rates. All they can do is expand the money supply or contract it, right? They can be inflating or they can be deflating, right? That's it. They, they run monetary policy. What does that have to do with racism? If people are racist, is printing money going to stamp that out? You know, or is raising interest rates or cutting interest rates going to change people's racist attitudes if they're actually holding them? Of course not. I mean, why even bring this up? It is completely irrelevant to the hearing. But every one of these Democrats, this is what they're running on. This is their talking point. America is a racist society. That's it. I mean, I mean, the, the left has won, right? We're, 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 we're basically all admitting this. In fact, the irony of it is the one thing that the Fed has done to help create more income inequality, which of course has uh, disproportionately affected African-Americans because they are disproportionately represented in the lower income uh, stratas, is its monetary policy, right? By inflating asset bubbles and diverting resources from Main Street to Wall Street, they have enriched the speculators at the expense of the real economy. By creating inflation, they have destroyed the value of a worker's paycheck. They have increased the cost of living. You know, so we get less savings and investment. We get less economic growth that would have benefited lower class workers and middle class. And instead, uh, we, 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 we uh, reward the financiers and the speculators and the people who already have wealth. So the one thing that the Fed has done to widen that gap for everybody, I mean, there's nothing racist about that policy, but the impact 
is disproportionately felt in the African-American community. That's the only thing that these senators want the Fed to do more of. They want them to print even more money. You know, and what they're afraid of is that, you know, everybody wanted to point out that the unemployment rate for whites went down last month, but it went up for blacks. And I was hoping, but I knew he wouldn't say it, but I would have loved Powell to say, well, you know, the um, unemployment rate for Asians went up by more than it went up for blacks, right? They're trying to imply that racism is the reason that the black unemployment rate went up and the white unemployment rate went down. Well, if that's the case, then America is more racist against Asians than it is against blacks because the Asian unemployment rate rose by an even greater percentage than the black unemployment rate. So clearly racism has nothing to do with what happened, yet somehow they're implying that it is. But even if it was racism, what can Powell do about it? Absolutely nothing. But what he is basically trying to say is we need you, the Fed, to create more economic stimulus, to print more money, to prop up the economy. Because if you don't do it, it's going to disproportionately hurt African-Americans who are unemployed, right? We have to continue to support, uh, create jobs as if the Fed can actually do it. The Fed can't. The Fed's monetary policy is not going to end racism. In fact, look, how long have we had this crazy monetary policy? Go back to the Greenspan days. I mean, if printing money eradicated racism, it should have been eradicated a long time ago. Look at how many trillions we've already printed. If that didn't get rid of racism, what will? Right? Obviously, racism is not going to be cured if we have it by printing money. In fact, we're going to create more of it, if anything, right? Because we're going to destroy the dollar. You know, we're, if, if people think African-Americans have a problem now, wait till they see how big the problem is if we have hyperinflation. Now, it's not really technically creating racism, but if you're going to define racism as whenever the, the poverty rate goes up in the African-American community, then by that definition, yeah, there's going to be a lot more racism when the Fed impoverishes everybody. But of course, a lot of white people are going to be impoverished too uh, as a result of these policies. But of course, none of these senators wants to accept any responsibility for the actual causes of all of these problems, which is the U.S. government. And I already did. I, if you didn't get catch my last podcast, in fact, we condensed it into um, one podcast just on that on this topic. It's capitalism punishes discrimination. Government rewards it. So just watch that. Listen to that. It's on YouTube or you can listen to it at Shift Radio. I went over a whole host of government programs that are responsible for the economic condition of African-Americans. It's not racism that has done this. I mean, I pointed out that America is certainly far less racist today than it was 100 years ago, yet all of the problems that these senators are concerned about are much worse today than they were 100 years ago. And so if racism is less of a problem, but these problems are greater, then clearly uh, racism is not the reason for the increase in the problem. It must be something else. And the something else is the laws that Congress has been passing. It's the government that is responsible. So instead of you know telling Powell to do something about it, these senators should do something about it by repealing all this legislation uh, that has destroyed the black family and, and made it so much ha- harder uh, for African-Americans to climb out of poverty. I don't want to go over all the stuff that I said in that video. Just go and watch it. The one thing, though, I left out of that video, I forgot to mention the public schools. That's another way that the government has failed African-Americans 
is that they are disproportionately trapped in failed public schools. These inner city public schools are a disaster. You don't get any education at all. And there's no competition. You know, more affluent families can pull their kids out of these lousy schools. They can move to the suburbs where the public schools aren't as bad, or they can send their kids to private schools. But these inner city schools run by Democrats are a complete disaster. The education is a joke. There is no education. No one cares about these kids. And so they graduate, a lot of them functionally illiterate. What we need is free market competition in education. How about school vouchers? How about doing something to allow uh, African-American parents to actually send their kids to a school where they actually might learn something, right? So this is another way that the government has created the problem by destroying the education uh, of, of such a large community by forcing them into a government monopoly as opposed to allowing choice and competition in education where they actually could learn something and therefore have a better chance of improving their lots in life. But the worst part about all this is nothing is going to get better, right? If we just blame it all on racism, if we want to take the easy way out and just accept the mob's view, right, that all these problems result from racism, then the problems never get solved. And of course, everybody who's claiming that racism is the problem, what's their solution? Spend more money, right? It's all about more government money. That's what they want. Checks mailed out uh, to African-Americans. You know, I read this uh, article, uh, an op-ed uh, from some guy, I forget, I forget who he was, uh, but he basically said that the, the best way that we can address uh, the wealth inequality, and he went over the average wealth of white households versus black households. And so his solution was that we give each African-American a check for between forty dollars and $60,000. Not really sure how he came up with this number. And, you know, he made, there's nothing in his article about how we would pay for it. I guess the Fed just prints it, right? But each African-American gets 40 to 60,000. And of course, there's nothing in there about who qualifies, right? How black do you have to be? I mean, Obama, right, is half white, half black. Does he get the full 40 to 60,000 or does he just get half a check, right? And if he still gets a full check, well, what if you're only 25% black? Do you still get a full check? I mean, I don't even know what qualifies you for being black, right? I mean, maybe you could be as black as Elizabeth Warren is Indian, right? I mean, she claims to be Native American, right? She's one one thousandth or whatever it is, Native American. I mean, if you're one one thousandth black, do you still get a full reparations check? I mean, nobody bothers to ask this questions. But I guess, you know, we just give everybody who claims to be black just gets the check, which obviously means we're going to be writing a lot more checks than there are blacks because a lot of people are going to want forty to $60,000 and all you have to do is say you're black, right? I, You know, so I don't even know how we would police this. But let's assume we could actually do it. Let's assume that only black people got these checks, right? Would this do anything to narrow the wealth gap? Absolutely not, right? His, the entire problem that he was writing about, this would not solve it. What would the typical black family do, or white family for that matter? I mean, I'm not being racist here, but he only wants to give the money to blacks. So that's why I'm talking about blacks. But if you gave a, a poor black family... $40,000. What would they do with that money? They would spend it just like they do with all their money. I mean, that's why they don't have any savings and they, they spend whatever they get. As soon as they got $40,000, they're going to buy stuff. I mean, they may buy a new car and it's all gone, 
but they're going to buy things. They're going to buy furniture. Maybe they'll take a vacation they always wanted. The money will be gone. I'd say inside a year, every penny would be gone. You know, just like lottery winners, right? People win the lottery. How long does it take before they're broke again? Most lottery winners go broke because they just spend the money. So, you know, they would buy stuff, consumer goods. It would be gone. This money would not be part of their net worth. Now, which black families would invest the money? The ones that are already rich, the ones that are successful, the ones that already have savings accounts and brokerage accounts. Yeah, they would take this 40000 and add it to the pile, right? So now they would get richer. But how is that helping anything? How is making wealthy blacks more wealthy going to help matters? It's not going to help the poor blacks. Yeah, it's going to be fun. They're going to get $40,000 and go on a shopping spree, but then the money's gone. Then what are they going to do? You're going to come back and say, oh, we need to give them more money because now there's an even bigger wealth gap, right? Or, you know, or one of the, what maybe one of them will go out and buy a house that they really can't afford, right? They'll put down a $40,000 down payment and have a big mortgage that they can't really afford. And they'll end up being poor because then they take on debt, right? You, you buy a house and then you take on a bunch of debt, right? Now you have a huge liability. What if the house goes down in value? People could actually end up being poorer because they took the money and they bought a house that went down in value and now they're stuck with mortgage payments that they can't make. So the government is going to do more harm than good if they actually did this. And of course, what economic growth is going to be destroyed if we just write every uh, African-American a check for $40,000? How much inflation is there going to be? How much uh, purchasing power is going to be destroyed in order to you know, make these payments possible. And what is the logic of giving wealthy blacks? Why should Barack Obama get a $40,000 check? Doesn't he make enough money giving speeches? I need to give another $40,000. You know, what about all these black athletes, you know, professional basketball players and football players? Why we got to give these guys money? Also, what about blacks who descended from people who immigrated into this country after slavery had already ended. Why should their descendants be entitled to reparations? I mean, what about the blacks who immigrated here themselves? I mean, there are black people that come to the United States every year, maybe even every day. I'm not really sure the exact number, but I know people immigrate into this country. If somebody just recently chose to immigrate to the United States because they believed they would have a better life here than wherever they left, Why should that individual get reparations just because he's black? And in fact, there could be some affluent blacks who have immigrated into the United States that have a lot more money than a lot of white people who have lived here their entire lives. And so why should those poor white people be taxed either directly or through inflation to pay reparations to a wealthy black guy who just got here? You know, there are more poor white people in America than poor black people, obviously, because there are more white people. Blacks are only 13 percent of the population. But why should poor white people have to give money to rich black people? I mean, no one even points that out. They never want to make a disparity. They want to reward the rich. And those are the only people who would actually add this money to their net worth is the people who are already responsible and already saving money. Everybody else would just spend it. But, you know, the most ridiculous thing about what's going on right now is the fact that businesses and companies are caving in, right? They are afraid to stand up to the race mob and call them out for what they are. And whenever the mob accuses you of being racist, 
you just apologize. You just accept it and you atone for a sin that you didn't even commit. And in fact, a lot of companies are go are coming forward, right? And they're just trying to prove how racist they aren't by announcing all the black charities that they're giving money to and all the new plans that they're going to do now to start combating racism. And, you know, but you have the, the members of this squad that are out there, right? And I've now encountered them for the first time myself, right? You know, if I don't know if, you know, if you don't follow me on Twitter, go to my, uh, to my Twitter. But I put out a number of tweets uh, trying to explain why, you know, blacks are more likely to be shot or why blacks are more likely to look suspicious, right? Because from crime. And I pointed out, well, blacks commit more crime, right? And I was specifically tweeting about a Fox News segment that I watched with Chris Wallace, right? and he was interviewing Ben Carson. And Ben Carson, of course, is black. And Chris Wallace uh, was talking to him. And one of the points he made was that even though African-Americans represent 13% of the population, they're twice as likely to be shot by the police. And that was the only thing that he said. And the implication there was that, well, the police are racist because they're twice as likely to shoot blacks as they are whites, without once mentioning the fact that blacks are engaged in criminal activity with a much higher frequency than are whites. And what is important is not how many blacks, what blacks represent as a percentage of the population, but what their percentage of the criminal population is. Because cops are not interacting with law-abiding people. They're more interacting with people who are breaking laws. And if you have a higher percentage of blacks breaking laws, then you're naturally going to see a higher percentage of blacks being shot. But Wallace didn't, didn't point that out. right? He tried to imply that, that the police were being racist. So I, I, I pointed this out on Twitter. And of course, by pointing it out, a lot of people are now accusing me of being a racist, right? Now, the, the bar for being a racist has been lowered dramatically uh, ever since, you know, the, ever since, uh, you know, this Black Lives Matter. In fact, Black Lives Matter now is probably one of the most popular organizations in the country. And so just saying anything that somebody who is black disagrees with, right, is now considered racist, right? So I, if I don't um, you know, you know, toe the line, right, and follow and march to this, we're all racist drum, then I'm a racist myself, right? So, and then uh, Chris Wallace also talked to Ben Carson and asked him if he ever had the talk, right, the talk with his sons, and the talk meaning where you have to talk to your children about how to act with the police, right, if, you know, to be respectful of the police and to, you know, to just, you know, uh, because, you know, you, you, you know, if you're not respectful, you know, you, you something bad could happen, right? If you don't listen to the police, if you attack the police, or if you run away from the police, right, uh, maybe something could happen, you could get shot. So listen to the police, right? He, and he asked him, did you have this talk? And Ben Carson says, of course I had the talk, right? Of course I told my kids that they need to be respectful of authority, all in, including the police. And Chris Wallace made a big deal about saying, well, his parents never had that talk with him and he never had that talk with his kids. Um, so I guess he doesn't give a damn how his kids act in front of police. I mean, even if you don't think your kids are going to break the law, I mean, a lot of us speed. I mean, I mean, I've interacted with police. I mean, I don't know very many people who have never got a speeding ticket. I mean, does Chris Wallace, does he tell his kids, hey, if a cop pulls you over, give him the finger? Is that what he, is that what he, that what he tells them? 
I mean, no. I mean, look, when a cop pulls you over, yes, officer, is there a problem, officer? I mean, I mean, that's how I, I don't mouth off to the cops just because I'm white. I don't have some privilege to mistreat the cops. You know, I mean, if I did, I mean, look, you know, if, if, if I did a lot of the things that some blacks do, I mean, the, the police could shoot me too. I mean, I'm not, my white privilege isn't going to save me. But I don't see how Chris Wallace is saying that, well, I never tell my sons to how to act in front of the police. I mean, it doesn't really make sense. But I know the real talk that Chris Wallace is referring to is not just the police, right? I understand that there is racism in America. I understand that, right? I don't think it's nearly as pervasive as people think, but I also think there are stereotypes out there. And stereotypes are not necessarily racist. They're just generalizations, right? Where people are playing probabilities, right? So if young black males commit a lot of crime, and they do, I mean, it's very, very high number, percentage is very high. So if any person, whether they're white or whether they're black, if they see young black males, especially if they're dressed a certain way, right, they're going to naturally be suspicious that they may be criminals, even if they're not, right? And so what black fathers or mothers tell black sons in particular, I mean, it's not as big a problem for black daughters, but black sons, because it's the men that commit the crimes, white men too. I mean, if you want to know who's committing crimes, uh, for whites, it's young white males. I mean, young males commit crimes. It's just that young black males commit even more crimes than young white males. But what a father, a responsible black father, would tell his law-abiding black son, and the majority of black teens are law-abiding. It's not majority criminals. What you say is, look, a lot of people, unfortunately, are going to look at you and jump to the wrong conclusion. Right? There's going to be a lot of people who are going to stereotype you, who may be more suspicious of you just because of this color of your skin. That's going to happen. And so you're just going to have to try harder. You're going to have to work harder than the average white guy. You're going to have to overcome uh, that stereotype. But the reason for the stereotype is not because people are racist. It's because young black men are committing a lot of crimes. Right. So I address that issue in a tweet. And I'm going to read verbatim the tweet. And it's got over 3,000 likes, so a lot of people like the tweet. I wrote this. The reason black parents must warn their sons that police are more likely to be suspicious of them than white men is that black men commit a disproportionate amount of crime. It's probability, not racism. Blame the black criminals, not the police of all races, for playing the odds. And by all races, I mean that black police are also more suspicious uh, of blacks than they are of whites. In fact, black policemen are more likely to kill blacks than are white policemen. I mean, does that mean black policemen are more racist than white policemen? I mean, one of the reasons is, you know, that black policemen tend to police in areas that have a higher percentage of blacks that live there because maybe they're from the same community. Uh, so that's part of it. But they're also shooting blacks uh, at, at a higher rate than their percentage of the population, just like white officers, because even black officers are more suspicious of young black males, not because they're racist. Obviously, they're not racist. They're just playing probability. And that's what, you know, being a policeman is. I mean, who looks suspicious and who doesn't look suspicious, right? I mean, that's what the police are doing. And so I put that tweet out there. And anyway, so earlier today, 
an email comes in to Alliance Global Partners from a woman, and I won't mention her name. I mean, she claims to be an, uh, a medical doctor. In fact, I looked her up online. She's a psychiatrist. Uh, and she was uh, a contributor for a left-leaning publication. I don't even want to say what that is because I don't, I don't need to uh, out her uh, specifically. Um, but she sent in a letter basically trying to get me fired, right? It's really like an extortion letter because I, I tweeted something that she disagreed with. So I'm going to read the letter verbatim that she sent. And of course, in, in, in around the same time of this letter, uh, Alliance Global Partners, which is the, the, the brokerage firm that owns Euro Pacific Capital. I, I used to own the brokerage firm. I sold it and the new owners named it Alliance Global Partners. And now Euro Pacific Capital is a division of the brokerage firm that I used to own, right? What I own now is Euro Pacific Asset Management in Puerto Rico, Euro Pacific Bank. Those are my two companies that I'm running. Shift Gold, I sold to Gold Money, and we run that in, in partnership with each other. But my two main businesses are in Puerto Rico, uh, where I do asset management and banking. Uh, and But I am an independent contractor. I'm a chief global strategist and uh, for Alliance Global Partners, and I'm still working with all my clients there. I do that from Puerto Rico. But anyway, so this lady writes the following letter, hoping to get me fired, Okay. So my name is so-and-so. I am a physician and former contributor. I am writing in regards to your colleague, Mr. Peter Schiff. Today on his personal Twitter account, Mr. Schiff posted several disturbing comments about black people. In one particular insensitive tweet, he wrote the following. And that's the, the tweet I just mentioned about black parents, why they have to warn their sons. Now, first of all, she doesn't say it's racist. She says it's insensitive. Well, I mean, don't I have a right to be insensitive? I mean, this country is is got to the point where, you know, you can't everything you say has to be sensitive that nobody can be insulted. I mean, it's Twitter. Why can't I insult somebody if I want to insult somebody? I mean, I don't think the tweet was insensitive. Now, the truth hurts, right? Sometimes the truth does hurt. And so I suppose if you don't want to deal with the truth and it hurts, you know, Maybe you can interpret that as being insensitive because I was being brutally honest. Uh, but that's my right to be to express an opinion. And she, she lives in a free country. And when you live in a free country, people are going to say things that offend you. And you just got to suck it up because you might say things that offend other people. I mean, I bet if I went to this lady's Twitter account, there'd be all sorts of crazy liberal stuff that would offend the hell out of me. But I wouldn't send a, a, a letter to her employer trying to get her fired because she expressed an opinion that I disagreed with, right? That's the difference. I'm tolerant, right? I'm tolerant of people who have ideas and viewpoints that I disagree with, right? She's not tolerant at all. That is the biggest joke of this. They're supposedly, these Black Lives Matter thugs, they're preaching tolerance, but they're not practicing it. They're practicing intolerance. They can't even tolerate me. They want to silence me. They want to get me fired. Anyway, let me finish reading. It says, I have also attached a screenshot of the tweet for your uh, reference. For obvious reasons, Mr. Schiff's comment has garnered a lot of outrage on Twitter and has thus far elicited close to 1,000 comments from other Twitter users. Yeah, it has. Most of the comments are positive. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, negative. But, you know, I've got over 3,000 likes on that tweet. So, I mean, there are plenty of people who liked it, right? It's not like, you know... I don't know. I obviously you can't you can't dislike a tweet, but you know I did have a number of people unfollow me. I probably lost about three or four hundred followers 
because of those tweets on race. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there are some people that can't handle the truth and somehow equate my pointing out the truth to my being a racist when I'm not a racist at all. And of course, you know, now they're saying if you deny you're a racist, you're a racist. So, of course, you can't win, right? Then she said, I have attached several of the many comments that have been posted in response to Mr. Schiff's tweet. This will give you a better idea of the ways in which the public has reacted with collective outrage. And the tweets that she attached, they weren't that bad. I mean, if this is the worst she could find, it wasn't like there was, it was, you know, there, I mean, there's a thousand of them. I'll read you the ones that she sent. Then she said, as a physician who is searching for new wealth, see, this is where she's BSing, right? As a physician who is searching for new wealth management and investment advisory services, I find these tweets particularly disturbing and concerning. Several of my physician colleagues have also expressed similar concerns about the anti-Black language in Mr. Schiff's social media posts. Do Mr. Schiff's views represent those of Alliance Global Partners? What will you do to swiftly and publicly address this matter? Swiftly and publicly, what will you do? And in what ways will you hold Mr. Schiff accountable? Accountable for what? Accountable for a tweet? Accountable for expressing an opinion? Actually, I didn't even express an opinion. I basically told the truth. I presented some facts that this woman finds objectionable because she doesn't want to spread truth. She wants to spread lies. And she's upset that I am pointing out the lies that she's spreading, right? And so what does she want to do? She doesn't want to try to educate me. She's not engaging me on Twitter and trying to show me what I'm wrong. All she's trying to do is get me fired. She's trying to scare Alliance Global Partners into firing me to say, oh, is this, does this represent the views of your company? Why would they represent the views of the company? She mentioned it's my personal Twitter account. So they're my personal views. Why can't I have personal views? And what she's saying is, if my personal views are different than Alliance Global Partners' personal views, I should be fired for having them. What is that, right? I mean, if that is, what? I mean, that, that's that got to be worse than racism. I mean, or at least equivalent to racism. So you're discriminating against people because they hold political views or social views or economic views that might be different from your own because I don't believe that the cops are racist. Yes, are there some racist cops? Of course, there are racists in every occupation. But is that the reason that for these problems? No, right? And I don't believe that racism is a systemic problem. I believe racism is not as big a problem today as it was 50 or 100 years ago. And so that means that I have to get fired. This is what this mob is all about, right? And then she finishes, I look forward to your response. All right. Now, I mean, I think her letter is going to go in the trash can. I mean, I would have fun with the response, but I don't think they want to, you know, you know, piss her off anymore. Because I think the, the fear is that maybe she would escalate it. Every firm, every brokerage from every company is now responsible for what their employees say on social media. You know, what might happen is a lot of businesses are probably going to have to outlaw uh, social media. They're going to have to tell their uh, employees, you can't have a Twitter account. You can't have a Facebook account because you may say, say something that incites one of these guys, right? And now I'm going to, I'm going to be blackmailed into firing you and publicly admonishing you, uh, or, you know, we're going to, we're going to be out of business. And that again, I said this earlier in the podcast, the problem here is that the companies are allowing it to happen. They are empowering these thugs by giving into them. It's like they're paying the blackmail.
right? Whenever you do what they ask for, you're just giving in to a terrorist. So like, just, you know, they say never negotiate with terrorists. That's what they are. This is not really about uh, black lives anymore. This is about driving this socialist agenda and, and, and getting these big checks. And believe me, we're going to have these huge government programs that nobody is going to be able to be against. They're going to be big, giant giveaway programs that are going to cost a fortune. They're going to do tremendous economic harm. But if you're opposed to them, you'll be a racist. So if you're not a racist, you have to vote in favor of them. And if you oppose them, that proves you're a racist. And so everybody will have to be in favor of them in order to prove that they're not racist. But I wanted to read the uh, the, the comments that, they, that she attached. So one was actually Max Kaiser. And it says, this is why Peter Schiff never got or will never get Bitcoin. White supremacists are too rigid in their minds to understand the paradigm shattering changes when they happen. So basically, according to Max Kaiser, the reason that I don't own Bitcoin is because I am a white supremacist. Well, what about my tweet was anything about white supremacy? I never said whites were supreme over anybody, right? There's nothing in my tweet that said blacks were inherently bad or inferior all I pointed out was they have a higher probability of committing crimes, which they do, right? Now, of course, the reasons for that are the government and the welfare state and the war on drugs and all the things that I went into in this video that I'm encouraging everybody to, to, to watch on this podcast, but I can't get into all that in this tweet. The important thing that I wanted to point out in the tweet is that the cops are not racist. <laughs> Some of them might be, but that doesn't explain the problem. You have to look at all the, the statistics. And that's what I'm pointing out. And none of that makes me racist. And it certainly doesn't make me a white supremacist. I mean, I'm Jewish. I mean, I mean, what about that? Huh? I mean, can't I play the Jew card? Maybe all these people are think are anti-Semites, right? Maybe, maybe the reason this woman sent this letter to my company trying to get me fired is because I'm a Jew and she's anti-Semitic. Why don't I just accuse her of that? And then if she denies it, that proves that she is. Anyway, here's another one. Um, Elizabeth like the queen or something. That's her name. What a disappointing and skewed take from a supposed intelligent person and economist. You should really ponder all the ways the data could be misinforming and misleading you. And if you need help, watch some 13th. I'm shocked at your lack of thinking here. So she's claiming that the statistics that I've been given are lies, right? That blacks really aren't committing all these crimes, that it's a lie, and I've just bought into the lie. So at least she's, you know, at least she's thinking, right? She's, she's, she believes that there's a conspiracy to pretend uh, that blacks are committing a disproportionate amount of crimes when they're not. So, I mean, all right, if she believes that, she believes that. But I don't think that comment, she's not that shocked. She's just disappointed that I, could, I didn't see through the conspiracy like she did. I mean, that's not, I mean, she's not outraged, you know, she... She's just surprised that I wasn't smart enough to realize that the statistics are wrong. And then here's the other one that she sent. I'm constantly astonished by rich people who could choose to do or be absolutely anything or anyone in the entire world, but they choose to be uneducated and sprout hate. It makes no sense to me. I could do so much good with your money and your reach. Zero tolerance for racism. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not racist. And I don't condone racism. I don't support racism, right? I mean, I've said that a million times and there's nothing about my tweet that was racist. I am stating a fact, right? Um, you know, 
And, 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 and if, you, if you call me a racist for stating a fact, well, then you've diminished what true racism is, right? I mean, you've, you've really lowered the bar so that anything counts as racism now. I mean, so now you're letting the real racists off the hook. But look, do I think racism should be a crime? No. I mean, people can think what they want. I mean, Mark, we don't, I don't believe in thought police, right? I mean, people believe in communism. I mean, what's worse, communism or racism, right? I mean, communism is pretty damn bad, right? But people have a right to believe in it, right, if they want to. And so if people are racists, they, they can be racists. Uh, now, would I, would I prefer a world where there were no racists? Sure. You know, and I think the world is better today because there's a lot fewer racists than there used to be. But you know what? I think this Black Lives Matters nonsense, this might actually backfire and create racism. There might, there must, there might be so much resentment created for the way this thing is going down that white people who aren't racist at all might suddenly develop those feelings. I mean, that's what could happen. That's what they, that, that's what they risk doing here with this attitude that they have. And then she says that I'm uneducated and, 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 I, and, I'm, and I'm sprouting hate. Where was their hate? Because I said that black men should be upset at black criminals who are giving them a bad name. Why shouldn't they? I mean, so what she, she, she doesn't want to, she's not mad at the young black criminals. She wants to glorify those young black criminals, right? I mean, what is the problem here? Is it the police or is it people committing the crimes? Right? All I said is those blacks that break the law are giving those blacks that obey the law a bad name. And that's what's happening because of statistics and probability. And it's not just white people who feel that way, it's black people too. It's black cab drivers that don't wanna drive into black areas, right? It's black waitresses that don't wanna uh, wait on black customers because they, they, they think they're bad tippers. I mean, none of this stuff is because of racism. It's just people making generalizations based on their experiences. Also, when I am talking about the fact that blacks commit a disproportionate amount of the crime relative to their proportion of the population. I'm not saying that because I believe that blacks are somehow genetically predisposed to commit crimes, that, they're, that they've got some kind of crime gene. I mean, if I actually thought that, then I would be racist. But I don't think that. I don't think genetics has anything to do with why blacks commit more crimes uh, than whites or even Hispanics relative to their percentage of the population. It's completely a function of the environment in which they're growing up. And I blame that environment on the government, on the welfare state, on the war on drugs, on everything the US government has done uh, pretty much over the last 50 years you know, certainly since the Great Society War on Poverty LBJ days, I mean, that's when the government did the most to really destroy uh, the black family. And it really has been downhill very quickly ever since the 1960s. You know, a lot of people look back at the 1960s as this great point uh, in black history because of the Civil Rights Act. But believe me, a lot of damage was done to black families as a result of what happened during the 1960s. If blacks actually knew the truth, if they actually had a better understanding of economics and history, they, they wouldn't be talking about racism. They would be talking about the real problems that you know has not only caused the criminality, but has caused this great disparity 
uh, in income and employment and wealth and all the other things uh, that ultimately uh, help lead more young black people to life's a crime. I bet if you took a lot of these young black men who end up being criminals, if they were raised in a different environment, then they would be law-abiding, upstanding citizens. I mean, it's only because, I mean, they're growing up in a home without a father, in a family that has been uh, on welfare for generations, and they're trapped in these failed government schools, uh, and they're surrounded by uh, the drug money and the temptation that's there because of the illegal profits uh, from uh, uh, prohibition on drugs. I mean, we have done so much to turn a lot of young black males that otherwise would have been law-abiding citizens into criminals, right? So there's nothing wrong with the black race. That's not my point. I'm just saying that because of all these factors, they are committing more crimes, and it's because they're committing more crimes that they're more likely to be shot and that they're more suspicious to law enforcement officers. I mean, these guys see the statistics. They know who's committing the crimes. I mean, black policemen are just as suspicious of young black males as white policemen. That doesn't mean those black policemen are racist. How could they be racist if they're black themselves against other blacks? They're just looking at the probabilities and they're trying to do the best job they can of trying to figure out who might represent a threat and and who doesn't, and to try to safeguard the community from a potential threat. That's all they're doing. Racism would be if you you feel that that one race, your race, is superior to all other race, and you have some kind of hatred or animosity for members of a different race. That's got nothing to do with people trying to um, make opinions based on probability. And you can't ignore the statistics when you're trying to just pick one piece and not put it in its proper context. By putting it in its context, I'm the one that educated myself. You know, She's saying that I'm misinformed and I'm uneducated when it's the reverse. She's the one that's misinformed. She's the one that's not educated because she didn't do the research. She just bought the line you know, that, oh, blacks are 13% of the population and they're twice as likely to be shot by police. Therefore, the police are racist. And she just accepts that and doesn't bother to, you know, to look behind the curtain to see what's really there. And because I did, well, now I'm accused of misleading people. I'm the one that's misinformed. I'm the one that's, that, that's uneducated, right? So, but these are the, these are the only three uh, tweets that she included. So apparently these are the worst ones she can find. And they're actually not that bad. Right. And believe me, there's plenty of, uh, of comments on there where people agree with me. Uh, but of course, she's not going to send those. But in any event, I just wanted to, um, to put that out there. But I probably will, to be honest. You know, I really don't want to create problems uh, for the broker dealer. So I'm probably going to stop tweeting about this topic. Uh, and that means they won. I mean, if it was totally up to me, I would just keep on telling the truth. But I can tell that this is too hot, right? I, I can't, it's like now the third rail. I can't express a contrary opinion to this narrative because it will create problems. And so what, uh, basically what this means is freedom of speech and freedom of expression 
has been quashed in the name of, you know, fighting racism, a racist threat that doesn't even exist. We have a real threat against our First Amendment rights to free speech, right? And, and freedom of thought and, and, and freedom of expression because everybody has now caved into the mob. And I know this isn't the government that's doing it, right? Because it's private industry, but they're scared out of their wits of, of, of retaliation uh, uh, from, from this mob. And, and, and there is no press back. The government is not doing anything to protect these uh, private interests uh, from these threats, right? From this intimidation. Uh, and so I'm just going to lay off the topic. And, and, and the result is going to be when you suppress the discussion, society loses. But of course, as I said earlier in the podcast, since racism has got nothing to do with these problems, yes, it's a problem, but it's not the problem. And it's not creating these big problems that everybody is concerned about. And it's not systemic. It's not widespread and all encompassing like everybody is now pretending. But since we're now going to accept this false narrative that the problem is racism, then the problem is not only never going to get solved, these problems are going to get much, much worse. And ironically, racism, which isn't that big a problem, is unfortunately likely to become an even bigger problem because of what's happening. 